get up and do my thing. I want to get into it, man, you know. Like, I, you know I'm the man, don't you? Can I count it off? One, two, three, four. You're listening to the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibbony, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a Christian worldview. Transcend partisanship and political ideology with us as we seek true discipleship in the public square. This is the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Weir and Justin Gibney, brought to you by the AND Campaign, the crux and the call. Justin Gibney, how are you? I'm doing good, man. I had a good weekend. It was the last uh, week of my kids' uh, summer uh, little league games, and so I, I coached both of their teams, and they were they got their trophies, and uh, it was good, man. It's it's always good to be around the, the kids and just seeing how they learn, giving them a chance to kind of build that foundation of character. And so we had some good kids on our team. They they all had a good time. So it was it was a good weekend, man. That's good. I uh, I had heat exhaustion all weekend, which I I'd, I'd never had before, and so I wasn't really thinking about it when I was out Friday. I was I was downtown Friday and and kind of wa- walking from meeting to meeting. But the heat index in D.C. was like 110, 111. And uh, Friday night, I got home from my last meeting and thought, man, I'm just like real tired. Uh, but I couldn't fall asleep. And I realized I had like 102 fever uh, with no other symptoms. So so uh, just a warning to folks as we head into uh, deeper into July and soon into August, uh, be, be careful. You know, especially for those of y'all like me who you know, once were 20, uh, but now <laughs> aren't so young anymore. <laughs> and and things might affect you a little differently than they would otherwise. Uh, be, be careful out there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, definitely. The, the summer can be tough, man. I, I, I saw that it was hotter in D.C. and Chicago than it was here in Atlanta. So that's uh, that was surprising. But it's uh, it's it's brutal out there, man. Take care of yourselves. Stay hydrated and uh you know, uh, have some fun outside of the sun when you can. That's right. But I'm I'm back. I'm in I'm in uh, uh, f- a full full order now and ready to jump into uh, to this week's episode. Uh, just uh, on Monday, thousands of Puerto Ricans, hundreds of thousands of Puerto Ricans demonstrators came to protest with the uh, with the goal of driving. Governor Ricardo Rossello from office as governor of Puerto Rico. Uh, now, this is a demonstration in San Juan. It came; a, uh, it's coming a, a day after Rossello announced that he would not quit. Now, th- now this is after several uh, Democratic candidates in 2020 have called for him to resign. This is after a week of street demonstrations. Uh, and it's 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 becoming a, a significant crisis. We're at now at uh, as of Monday, we're at uh, ten consecutive days of protest. Now, obviously, Puerto Rico has has faced some significant challenges from uh, Hurricane Maria, but obviously, the the history of Puerto Rico is is complicated. And AP is reporting that Puerto Rico faces. $70 billion in debt, in part due to Hurricane Maria. They also do not have representation in Congress 
or a vote for for the president in the Electoral College. So, Justin, uh, there are a lot of pieces here. Uh, and so uh, break down for folks what the governor is facing, why he's in this predicament, and what do you think sort of the future looks like for Puerto Rico in this precarious moment? So the first thing, Michael, I would say is just prayers out to the people of Puerto Rico. Uh, This is the last thing that they need. This is a country in need of a unified effort to rebuild what was lost in Hurricane Maria. Uh, And and that's going to take even if everybody was unified, that's going to take a lot of time and focused effort. And so to hear this conversation about you have government corruption, one of the things that they were saying was going on in Puerto Rico is that the administration uh, was actually giving contracts to, to, to folks who were associated with the administration but weren't, weren't necessarily qualified. That is bad enough, but it's even more egregious when you're talking about a country that is going through all the things that Puerto Rico is, Puerto Rico is going through. You cannot throw away any money, especially when you look at their debt and all these things, just so you can kind of give it to your political cronies. That's unfortunate. The other part of this is what they're calling chat gate. Apparently, he was on a message group. The governor was with some trusted allies uh, and there were some problematic messages in there. Uh, One message called one of his female political opponents and you can cover the ears of the children uh, a whore. Uh, and made fun. Then another one uh, made fun of uh, Ricky Martin's sexuality, unfortunately. And so you're, they're saying, you know, you have these misogynistic and homophobic uh, uh, messages that were leaked out. Um, and and again, it's also been found that his underlings were giving uh, contracts to people who were associated who were just not qualified to do the job. So he's in a tough situation. Uh, as you may know, Michael, uh, Ricardo Rosello is a young uh, known as being a charismatic uh, guy. Uh, he's M- uh, MIT educated uh, for what that's worth. And he's also the son of a former uh, governor. From what I understand, he kind of painted himself as a technocrat that could get the job done to fix things in Puerto Rico. And that's just been tough, especially with the, the hurricane that came through. So after these um, messages came out, he has uh, said that uh, they were from him. He has, has asked for forgiveness. Uh, he will not run for reelection. So everybody is calling for his resignation right now. Um, and that's why you see all these protesters calling for his resignation. He will he, he has not said that he will resign. He has stepped down from the new progressive party and uh, he has uh, stepped down from being. Well, yeah, he has, has he stepped down from the leadership. And he he's, uh, also said that he won't run for reelection, but he's not agreed uh, to, to 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 resign. Right, right, right. And I think AOC and some people, some other folks uh, in the U.S. have have actually called it. And the the non voting representative in the house of in the house uh, that's uh, represents Puerto Rico, Jennifer Gonzalez Colon, has uh, asked for him to step down too. So he, he he's hearing these calls, uh, but he said he is not willing to step down. So in addressing this, though, Michael, I think there's two things we need to look at. Number one are the immediate needs of the people. Uh, there are some very immediate needs, whether it's water, food. They have some serious infrastructure problems. I think that's the first thing you need. We need to deal with. And so if if you through your church or whatever can get some help to Puerto Rico for whatever they're asking for, I'm not sure exactly what they're asking for most right now. That's the first thing I think we should be concerned with as Christians. Number two is the statehood conversation. Uh, should Puerto Rico be this, be a state? Should they have a vote uh, in the House of Representatives and the Senate and all that stuff? And that's a that's an interesting conversation making, you know, bringing a 51st state here 
isn't may not just be an easy thing to do. I think we have to look at whether it is the right thing to do. Uh, I'm not an expert on that. I think it's worth a conversation. Uh, and 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 I think I would like to see some presidential candidates talk about it. The most immediate need at this very moment is making sure that their government gets it, their stuff together, but even more so that the people get their immediate needs met because there's a lot of folks suffering in Puerto Rico. And if we can do something about it, we should. Yeah, it's. Uh, I do think that we're going to hear a conversation about this during the debates at the end of the month, which we'll talk about more at the end of the episode. You know, I'd I'd be interested to to know how Puerto Ricans feel about presidential candidates that they can't vote into office. Uh, feel they can vote for them in the primary, they can't vote for them in the in the actual presidential election. Uh, uh, how they feel about them speaking into really the highest position they currently have the authority to vote over, particularly if some of those candidates don't support Puerto Rican statehood, which is increasingly becoming a de facto democratic position. So that's going to be interesting to see how it plays out politically. But uh, Justin, you're absolutely right. You know, in in this moment, Puerto Rico is just facing a, a crisis of governance. I mean, particularly when there are corruption charges involved, it's just very difficult when the person in office accused of corruption is also saying he's not going to let go of the position that that really creates a, a significant democratic challenge. And that's why we see hundreds of thousands out in the streets today in Puerto Rico. And so prayers for Puerto Rico. And, you know, hopefully, you know, someone steps into the leadership vacuum. Yeah. And that's when you see something like so you have a situation like Puerto Rico's, which is a dire situation. And now you have these violent protests. And, and, you know, this is a question. Is is this a moment for violent protests when, yes, you do have the corruption? Um, yes, you do have, you know, the messages that were sent out. But are, are violent protests beneficial at this moment? That's a question that, that should be looked at, too. Now, I'm always saying if you feel you need to protest, uh, you 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 have the right to do so and should do to do so. But when you're talking about violent protests at a time when people are suffering and so now you're taking resources away from the because you want I mean, they obviously want this guy to get out. But is that the best uh, is that the best tactic to get him out when now you're taking resources away from people who who are in need? just to deal with these violent protests. So I think the protesters may want to think twice about some of their tactics. Here's another question that's just more general. And, and, and with as technology grow, as technology gets goes further and further, it's something that we probably need to think about uh, from an ethical standpoint is what should be the standard for private messages? Um, you know, in, in our in our public and private lives, we should reject insensitive and hateful statements. That's not we're not debating that. But should a private statement be treated the same way as a public statement? Uh, how much should people censor their conversations with their friends and their close associates? Uh, how many of us would probably want some grace if all of our private messages were exposed? Uh, do we show that grace uh, to others when they get their information leaked? Those are some those are some questions I think we need to to look at and answer as again, technology moves um, further and further, you're going to see this happening more often. And how should we deal with it? Um, I don't think that's something that we should take for granted. Yeah. And, you know, how should news organizations, you know, in particular, you know, handle it? What obligation do they have? And, you know, 
that's a different question now than it would have been 30 uh, years ago, even if news organizations decided, you know, this is not appropriate material to be published. It, you know, it would find its way into the mainstream re- regardless through other means. And so I agree that's a critical question. Not sure, <laughs> not sure too many of the hundreds, 100,000 plus folks in San Juan on Monday uh, are, are going to be interested in, in that conversation. But that's part of the problem, right? Like we want to have those conversations when moments like this come up. How do we, how do we talk about what's instigating crises like these when there's not a crisis uh, on on the plate. So yeah, and, th- and then prioritizing issues too. So none of the right. issues that those folks are are, are upset about uh, I would belittle, but does it take away from a bigger a bigger life or death issue for some folks uh, for for some other folks in the country who may not be in the city, they may be outside of that. How do we prioritize you know, our protests are prioritized, uh, the issues that we're confronting as not to take away from ones that may be more immediate. And that's yeah. not to say that he should stay in. I'm not close, close enough to the issue to really have an opinion on whether he should be there or not. Um, uh, but they need to get the job done and is a transition what they need right now. I'm not, I'm not sure. Those are questions that I don't think, uh, advocates at, uh, yeah, I don't think at folks who are advocating should be blind to those kind of questions. Yeah. All right. We're going to take a break. When we get back, we're going to talk about uh, 2020, both the debates and and sort of the pre-debate scuffles that we see developing. This is the Church Politics Podcast. All right, we're back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. And just in over the weekend, we saw Mayor Bill de Blasio, who is was one of the last candidates to jump in the race, um, who is one of the candidates uh, polling the lowest, polling behind Andrew Yang, polling behind Marianne Williamson, uh, blasting Beto O'Rourke for uh, his opposition to Medicare for all, uh, de Blasio, who, as we've discussed before, you know, is one of these, um, is, is a lower tier candidate at this point, And so is just trying to sort of punch his way into the mid tier and the top tier. And when you have a primary like that, and such a large group of candidates, what it means is someone like Bill de Blasio really has nothing to lose, uh, particularly given his very low approval rating in the city he leads. Uh, and so just just for a taste of these criticisms, he accused Beto of, quote, lazy fear-mongering tactics. De Blasio said, uh, de Blasio tweeted, if someone proposed a radical idea called public education today, Beto would try to warn us that 180 million Americans would be kicked out of their schools Let's leave the lazy fear-mongering tactics to Trump. I don't understand why Beto's attracting so much heat, Justin, when he's polling 6th, 7th, 8th, sometimes lower mm-hmm. in many of these national and state polls. It's such an interesting thing to go after Beto so strongly, as opposed to, I, I mean, 
Beto's not doing that much better than Michael Bennett, than John Delaney, than Hickenlooper, than Joe Biden. Uh, like many of these candidates have made similar arguments. Those who haven't embraced Medicare for all have said, look, the not just the politics, but the, the, the practicalities of moving to Medicare for all. Uh, when we have a private employee-based insurance system now, uh, is just difficult. And for de Blasio to, to say that merely raising that question is Trumpian, I think in some ways it's a new low in the Democratic primary process that you see Democrats going after one another in this kind of way, in a way that's going to make, you know, who who cares what de Blasio calls Trumpian when it comes to Trump, if if it's Trumpian to merely, you know, say Medicare for all may not be the best route to take. Justin, what what did you think of this of this uh, this feud of you know someone who's at the very bottom of the rungs punching up at someone who's you know not in the top tier and in 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 the mid tier right now? Yeah, I, I'm still trying to figure out why De Blasio ran and how he fits into this race, <laughs> like where he, th- why he thinks he can just kind of pop up and and be a contender. I'm, I'm, right. you know, I, I just have a problem. Like I, I feel like if you're a mayor, um, if you run the city and you don't have great reviews there, then right. it's just hard. How how are you running for president? So anyway, um, you know, yeah. De Blasio, as you as you pointed out, he's taken probably the most aggressive uh, posture in the race. Uh, when it comes to attacking other Dems, you do have the Harris Biden back and forth. But I think even more aggressive, Bill de Blasio has done everything he could do to, to bogart his way uh, into <laughs> these conversations. Yeah, uh, yeah. And and so I get it. I, if you're going to run, which I don't understand why he's running, I guess he might as well give it a shot because he has nothing to lose on the presidential stage, I guess. And so uh, you might as well go for broke, which is just weird for somebody who is a, a big city mayor uh, the way that he is. And and again, as you mentioned, his his campaign just isn't registering in the polls. You know, he's not even at one percent. Um, and so this is one way to get media attention, and that's what he's doing. Beto to me seems particularly vulnerable. Um, you you're right to say that he's not that high up, but he's higher than he probably should be, right? He's high he's higher than most, but at the same time, he seems vulnerable. Because he hasn't been able to get too much traction. I think he seems somewhat overrated. And just the way that he responds to attacks just makes him look weak. And so he's he's really looked weak. And so he's almost like the, you know, I don't know if you watch like Animal Planet, but you know, you got the the, the they go for the sometimes the one limping behind the pack. And he seems yeah. to be somewhat <laughs> limping. He's not necessarily all the way behind the pack, but he's somewhat limping in that when you go after him, you're not going to get the type of battle that you might get for somebody else. Right. So I think there are other people who if the Blasio goes after him, he's going to have to, you know, he's going to get some some real punches thrown right back at him. And Beto just doesn't respond in a very strong way. Right. So so in a way, you, you know, you're attacking somebody weak who's not going to punch you in the same way as you may have uh, uh, with the same type of weight that you've thrown at them. Um, so I think that's part of it. Uh, but also he does have a big name. I mean, he's he's not that low. What is he's like at like at sixth. And so you're not going to attack some of the other per- people. Maybe it's an identity issue. I don't know why he didn't go for Biden, though. Maybe he thinks that's too high up. Right. And he said, well, that looks right. desperate. But if I if I punch Beto, that looks more like 
we're, it puts us on the same level. So maybe I even rise up to eight or something like that, right? And yeah, we yeah. can go back and forth. Uh, that may be some of the thought behind it. But let's look at what they're actually talking about. Let's look at this issue. Beto said, as you mentioned, that 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 getting rid of private health care would force the majority of Americans off their existing insurance. Uh, that's about one hundred and eighty million people. Those are facts. De Blasio steps in and accuses him of fear mongering with the facts. The problem is yeah. the statement is yeah. accurate. Right. And so right. apparently pointing out the flaws or perhaps even unwanted aspects of the policy is fear mongering. Now, Again, I think Beto was underrated, uh, overrated by his supporters, overrated. Let me be clear about that. Um, but he's not a fear monger. Like he hasn't been going around fear mongering. He's saying, look, this is a policy. I'm going to evaluate the policy. Yeah, there may be some benefits to it. Here are the downsides. And if you can't talk about the downsides of a policy, that's pretty weak. And so what de Blasio is doing is just the basic you're not progressive enough and you just want to right. focus on the negatives. No, I'm being realistic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so. It comes down to this for me. I simply don't think Medicare for all is a winning issue for Democrats. Uh, um, most Americans want some form of universal health care, meaning they just want everybody to be covered. And I'm part of that group. I want everybody to have an opportunity to be covered. Now, if you don't want to be covered, you know, there's like another conversation there. But at the same time, they don't want to get rid of private care. Um, and no one out of these people who are who are supporting Medicare for all has really come, done a good job of explaining how it'll be paid for. Uh, we saw a couple of videos last week where even um, uh, a few different candidates were asked the question. I think Kamala Harris was asked the question, how is this paid for? And the answer was just wanting. It just wasn't very clear how that would be paid for. Now, as we go into that and, and as we see that back and forth, I think this could be a really big issue going into the general. But the other thing we have to keep in mind is the Republicans haven't come up with a good plan either. And so really it's just the status quo or, or completely getting rid of Obamacare, which doesn't solve the issue. And so this is an issue that needs, that needs, that needs to get solved. It's a very critical issue. And de Blasio, I don't think he helps the conversation at all by saying that someone who's stating facts is being a, a, a fear monger. That's, it's just ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, I know we don't have a full healthcare discussion, you know, planned for today. Now, I will say uh, Biden's plan that he rolled out last week, as we discussed, you know, uh, he and uh, Bernie Sanders went kind of back and forth. You know, Biden's plan of, of, you know, explicitly and rhetorically, you know, building upon the Affordable Care Act and Obamacare with a public option, which was, of course, a part of the Affordable Care Act debate. It was decided that it wasn't politically feasible at the time. Uh, Biden saying, look, Democrats just accomplished what we said at the time was life-changing you know, the biggest domestic accomplishment of uh, a political party or candidate or whatever, you know, since, you know, the New Deal or Great Society or what, you know, like, I think it's jarring politically, not just policy wise, though that's important too. like the health insurance, uh, our health care landscape just in 2010 had the uh, accommodate itself and reorganize uh, to a certain extent around the Affordable Care Act to be coming back 10 years after and saying, not, not just we need something new, but what the Medicare for all folks are saying, which is 
actually, that that wasn't much, even though we all voted for it. We want to scrap that, which took, you know, 70 years of Democrats calling for uh, greater health reform. We want to scrap that. And now we have this whole brand new thing that, by the way, is going to completely fundamentally uh, change healthcare in America forever. Like, politically, that doesn't jive. And I actually think just policy wise it's it's it seems erratic to go uh, f- with all, basically all of the same players bernie was there uh it, like all these folks or I, most of these folks were there if they weren't voting for it they, the, none of these folks were public opposition to the affordable care act and it's it's just um uh, i just say messaging wise and policy wise to, to go so quickly to something like Medicare for all when there's been such a significant investment in Affordable Care Act, I think that's just going to strike the American voter as as like gamesmanship, like what what's going on here? And so I do think that there are different plans on the table. This is clearly the most uh, substantive policy debate going on in the Democratic Party. And that's part of why it's unfortunate that de Blasio would go into you know, accusing Beto of fear mongering. Like if, if this is a policy debate we're going to have, let's have the policy debate, not calling Beto fear mongering because he pointed out that this is a politically weak part of the plan that you're going to kick potentially 180 million people off health care plans that they currently well, Beto's like. mistake was talking about the details at all. We don't, we don't want to talk about the yeah. details. Let's just, let's That's just, right. let's just That's put the right. narrative yeah. out there. Uh, that we're the good guys and we're going to save everybody. Why would you get into the details of what could what could actually happen to, to folks? Uh, and, and that, you know, that that was his uh, uh, that's what he did wrong. So, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. It, it doesn't if this is as serious of a conversation as, as we say it is, then we does it deserves to have a real policy debate and to really talk about these facts and not have somebody put the facts out there and then you just try to dis- summarily disregard them uh, for no good reason at all. So, yeah, I'm with you on there. There's a political side uh, to it, a policy side, a communication side. And I think uh, de Blasio fails and where the conversations at in the on, in this primary is failing the people right now. Uh, we can do better. And hopefully somebody has the courage to, to do that. And really, Biden, this this uh, this conversation allows Biden to be the adult in the room on this conversation. And if he's smart, he may pull that one out and say, look, you guys are not being realistic at all. Here's what we should do. Here's the, you know, we went with Obamacare. We're going to keep it. We're going to make it better. And here's how we should move forward. It allows him to do that. And unfortunately for, I think Kamala Harris, she's put placed herself in a position where she can't even come back and, and say, you know, and and put out a more reasonable plan. So this is, this is going to be interesting. And I, if I were Biden's people, I try to take advantage of it. Yeah. Well, when we get back, last conversation we're going to have is about the debate lineups. And, you know, we'll tell you after the break, but uh, guess who's not going to appear on the debate stage together? It relates to the conversation we've been having. Hey, uh, this is the Church Politics Podcast. Uh, We'll be back after the break. All right, we're back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. And uh, Justin, we saw last week 
you know, there are really two things I want to discuss here in this segment. First is, you know, we have the debate lineups and those are going to be consequential and we should talk about those. The the first conversation to have is about how we got the debate lineups. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that is a CNN NFL draft like spectacle uh, that, it has nothing to do with supporting the political process, all to do with supporting CNN's ratings, um, all to do with supporting uh, uh, treating politics as entertainment. Uh, and so they took an hour long segment uh, to pull 20 names from a hat and pair them up with with a particular date. And so, you know, that's a conversation. Secondly, you know, there was a bunch of criticism, which I'm not sure would have existed if Trump had not become the nominee. But there, there, there was a lot of criticism of the way that Republicans ran their primary. And a part of that was their debates. And so they had what they called, you know, a big kids, uh, you know, a, 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 a little kids table, which were the, the bottom candidates all were in the same debate and then sort of the primetime players. And there was a lot of sort of conversation that, you know, by having Donald Trump, who wasn't a politician, who didn't have a record, but because he was, he had name recognition, he was at, it sort of legitimized him. And so Democrats were like, we're not going to do that. We're going to just set up some metrics for how you make it into the debates and then it's going to be kind of randomized, but we're going to leave it up to debate organizers to to declare how it's how it's randomized. The, the The whole point is this: as we talked about last week, Bernie and Biden went at each other all week on healthcare. Last week, uh, Beto and De Blasio, as we just discussed this weekend, went again, went back and forth on healthcare themselves. Guess who's not going to be? in the debate uh, together uh, next week. Beto's in one debate, de Blasio's in another, Biden's in one debate, Bernie's in another. So how is this serving the party? How is this serving sort of the Democratic side of this election process when you have, you know, completely arbitrary ways of setting up these debates that are not really allowing voters to see the critical conversations play out in the opportunities that the candidates are in in the same place. Now, it's only July. This thing's going to get narrowed down. It's not like we're never going to see Biden and Bernie uh, on the same stage. I mean, we may never see Beto and Bill de Blasio on the same stage (laughs) because Bill de Blasio may not make it until the next debate. But, you know, there are going to be a lot of debates before Iowa and New Hampshire. But it is just the spectacle of it, Justin, uh, and the arbitrariness of it, I think is a is a different kind of mistake than the Republicans made. But it's still a it's still a mistake that they sort of they changed what Republicans did in 2016, but I'm not sure they necessarily made it better. Uh, so, you know, with all of that on the table, uh, I guess I should just recap. So on the first debate, Bernie and Elizabeth are are in the same debate. So so that'll be interesting. Uh, Bernie and Elizabeth Warren, Warren uh, are in the same debate. That's going to be interesting. We also see P. 
Pete Buttigieg and Beto in that debate. There has been a lot of speculation, which I basically agree with, that Pete stole some of Beto's thunder. So it's going to be interesting to see how strongly Beto goes after Pete uh, to see if he could regain sort of that lane as fresh uh young, white, sort of next-generation kind of guy. And then Amy Klobuchar and Hickenlooper, uh, along with John Delaney, Steve Bullock, uh, are sort of the the governing folks who are more pragmatic. And then Marianne Williamson and Tim Ryan are in that first night as well. And then the second night, uh, Harris and Biden will – you know, CNN was calling it a rematch, which again adds to the spectacle, like they're like they're boxers. Um, Cory Booker and Julian Castro, and and they'll be and Kirsten Gillibrand. It'll be interesting to see how the three of them interact. Uh, and then just to close out that debate, De Blasio, Inslee, Tulsi Gabbard, Andrew Yang, and Senator Michael Bennett, who uh, I've been saying folks should keep an eye on. He may, he may not sort of rise in the polls. He is a significant voice in the party and in terms of public policy, who I think will play a big role in Democratic policymaking, uh, if not sort of presidential races uh, o- over the next uh, few decades. Justin, uh, what did you think, A, of the how CNN handled the debate draft? Uh, and then B, you know, as you look at these lineups, uh, and we'll have another week to talk about uh you know, the debates uh, to, to, to prep folks for them. But as you see these lineups, what, what do you think folks should be attentive to? Yeah. So with this many candidates, there's no perfect way to get as many people as vo- involved as possible. Right. There's just there's just no perfect way to do it. But even within that, this ain't it. Right. Uh, this I agree with you. I think CNN and the way that the, the DNC are going about it really just trivialized uh, the discourse. Right, trivialize the back and forth where this is not about entertainment. These are about serious issues, and we want. I mean, to me, it just sets the it it sets the um, the environment for entertainment. And so, when they get on the stage, who's going to give us the best one liner? I mean, the one thing that we know is that when you have this many people, we're looking for really who gives you the best one liner because you can't go in depth. Uh, and so I'm with you. I think this is probably one of the, the worst ways I've seen that we can do it. I didn't think that the Republicans was perfect, but I understood where they were coming from. But but for Trump, people wouldn't have probably wouldn't even had a problem with the way they did it. And so I think the what the Republicans did may have worked even better uh, because you did have the top folks going head to head. And then the folks who are at the kids table, look, if you really stand out, you get to go to, you know, you get to go up maybe next time if you jump up in the polls. But to have all these people, folks who are barely even registering, standing next to, you know, Biden, who's, you know, consistently above 25 percent or whatever, just is not getting us anywhere. Um, And so, you know, as time rolls on, the party's going to have to find a way to whittle this field down. That hasn't been done, but we're not going to have substantive debates. We're not going to go in depth until we're able to whittle this field down. You'll have a a few insults thrown here and there, uh, folks trying to say something to get some attention, but you're not going to go into the policy that the way that we need to get into it. That obviously takes time, I think, with any uh, presidential primary, but we're a ways away from that. And and, and, and as folks start really paying attention, we need to get a, a little bit closer. So yeah, we shouldn't trivialize it. This is not a draft. This is not entertainment. Uh, I'm sure it brings more eyes and, 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 and speaks to the bottom line. 
But we got to be more. We got to be about more than just the bottom line and the money that may be driven in from this. Uh, We need to get to these serious issues because people, again, are hurting and and need answers. Yeah. And, and you know, at this point, uh, only seven of the candidates have met the DNC's criteria to make the September debates, which are the next debates. So that that does two things. One, it means that we're probably going to have a, 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 a definitely a more uh, significantly smaller debate field. We'll see if candidates stay in who don't make the debate, but we'll have a uh, significantly smaller debate field by by uh, by September. It also means that this debate, many of these candidates are viewing this as their last shot. And so, you know, if you thought as I did that Eric Swalwell was impetuous uh in his debate he's out of the race but we're gonna have you know 10 eric swalwells one of them being bill de blasio on the debate stage they're just looking for their moment so that they could raise what they need to raise so that they could pull at what they need to pull at uh in order to continue to be in these debates not to mention you know get a delegate uh, come, uh, come, uh, you know, actual voting. Um, and so it, it, it's going to be, uh, interesting to see. I, I think these debates are going to be, you know, as enlightening, which is to say not as much as the first round. I think the main takeaways from, from the debates are just going to be, you know, one or two, you know, critical moments that, you know, set the next week or two of conversation and we'll see who's able to, who's able to create those. Uh, but again, we have a, we have a whole other week to prepare for uh, these debates. Uh, we just had the debate draw last week. We're going to, it's going to be interesting to see how these candidates position themselves heading into the debates. Keep your eyes out for sort of seeds to be planted in uh, during this week and early next week uh, that will sort of, prepare the ground for an attack or for a particular line of argument uh, in the debates. And and that's something to always, you know, keep your eyes out for. Uh, Justin, I think we've reached the end of this episode. Uh, Do you you have anything that uh, you would want folks to be thinking about until they hear from us next week? Yeah, one thing to be looking at is we we see these national polls, which aren't as valuable as you may think they 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 would be, uh, because people don't. That's not the way the election works. And so there's a new there's a newer poll that came out. It was a uh, CBS News and YouGov uh, that were some of the early primary states. And so I just want to just just want to give some attention to that real quick. If you look at the Iowa Democratic Presidential Caucus. You have Biden at 24 uh, percent. You have uh, Warren at 17, Sanders at 19, Harris at 16 and Buttigieg at seven. Uh, Now you go to New Hampshire for that primary. You got Biden even higher at 27, Warren again in second uh, at 18, Sanders at 20 and Harris at 12. And then if you go and look at South Carolina, which was very interesting to me, you have Biden all the way up at 39 Sanders at 17, Warren at 12. And this was surprising to me. Harris also at 12 in South Carolina. The reason South Carolina is big, especially when it comes to the black vote, that is by far majority black uh, voters voting in that South Carolina presidential primary to see Harris at 12. I'm not that. I wonder what that says, but that's, that's, um, that's interesting to see. Any, any thoughts about those numbers, uh, Michael? 
Yeah, I mean, so I think, you know, Harris had a post-debate bump that seems to have leveled off. Uh, So I think, you know, it'll be interesting to see, you know, she may have taken, as we've discussed, she may have taken her, her big shot a little too early in this process. If she doesn't take another shot in this debate, it's going to be like, well, where, where did, where did she go? You know, where, but she didn't get a big enough bump out of that first shot well, in say. the June debate <laughs> yeah, yeah. To, 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 to last. So, you know, we saw her come into second in some of the national polls, but now in the national polls, she seems to have settled back down into fourth in some of these state polls, as you've just read, you know, she's, uh, in fourth again in a lot of them now in some she's she's a little high higher up but it's uh, i'm not sure she she's gonna have to keep building momentum which which is which is fine uh but now she has a bigger target on her back because she's shown that she can throw some punches too so it's just gonna be very interesting to see how she how she plays out i do believe her south carolina numbers are higher now than they were you know a month ago so i think she's She's trying to build. She made a big showing at the Essence Festival. She's now writing, a, um, I believe, a monthly column for Essence. Uh, she's putting in a lot of work and communication. The question is just whether her policies right. are, are in the right place and whether, she, whether the message that she has is something that's more tailored to get, garner elite uh, black support in a way that doesn't necessarily translate into getting support uh, in a mass way in a place like South Carolina. And I, yeah, and I think that's what's missing. I think that you have a campaign that's oriented towards kind of your more academic elite African-Americans, even your more Twitter, you know, you're kind of folks who are on Twitter. Yeah. But it, it but it's not getting to the grassroots. I mean, and so when we talk about a bump after the last debate, there's no way that you could have a bump. You should have a bump after the last debate that doesn't at least put you as a as an African American female in second place in South Carolina. I mean, to be in fourth place in South Carolina, that was that was just surprising to me. So a lot of time left, though, guys. Yeah. A lot of things can happen. I can almost guarantee you, Biden's gonna make make say some things he shouldn't. Uh, a lot of things are going to happen. So so in no way are we saying this is over, but that's just an interesting number to that's see uh, after a debate that many people thought was strong. So keep your eyes on those polls. They uh, The state polls are more telling than a lot of the, the national ones. Right. And just, you know, it does mean, I think, if you would have told us that there was a Biden-Harris uh, debate again in July, like a few days after the June debate, you, you would have said, wow, Biden's really going to come out punching. But now that the numbers have settled back down, you know, it becomes an interesting strategic question for Biden as to whether, even though he took a really significant hit from Harris, and even though it was a tense couple of weeks after that debate, you know, he definitely needs to be prepared to punch back if Harris comes at him. But if he's still polling in first, if he's still you know, beating her by 20, 25 points in South Carolina. Um, does he really want to be the aggressor in, in this debate next week? And I would say no. I, th- I think he needs to be prepared uh, to be strong. He needs to be prepared with a counterpunch. If Harris does come after him in a significant way, I'd say he also has to 
you know, uh, he, Harris isn't the only one he's going to need to uh, be looking uh, out for. I think uh, Corey Booker, Gillibrand, uh, th- th- there are a number of candidates uh, that are going to be on stage that are going to be looking at Biden. But but that's going to be interesting to see. Be- yeah, the, guns, the, the guns are going to be out. And if I'm Biden, I'm thinking, OK, you need very quick defenses. So if somebody says something you can anticipate what you're going to get attacked on. Have a one or two line defense and get back to what you want to talk about. Don't yes. give it too much attention. Get them, you know, address it and get back to what you want to talk about. I would, like I said earlier today, I would pick something like the conversation about Medicare for all or something like that. I don't think that's going to hurt him much by being more centered on that issue. Be the grown up in the room on that issue. So answer them and then get back to what you want to say. But yeah, there's no, there's no value right now in him being the aggressor. Uh, He really just wants to get through those. I think he wants to get through it in a better way than he did the first time. Uh, But that's really just by having better responses and, and then moving on. Yeah, I really agree. Um, uh, just one quick reading recommendation for folks. Derek Thompson uh, at The Atlantic has an article called The Future of the City is Childless. And I just highly recommend it. He talks about the way that we've, uh, we're have we building our, uh, our cities as basically entertainment machines for the young, rich, and mostly childless. Uh, he goes through some of the major cities, including my city of D.C., which even though it's shown population growth of 20 percent in this century, it has fewer people under 18 in the city than it did at the beginning of this century. So 20 percent of population growth, but fewer 18 and under uh, folks. Uh, it, it's it's a really enlightening article that can be that can be approached from multiple angles. It, from my view, part of the story is one of gentrification and the effect that gentrification is having on cities. Uh, from another angle, it's uh, about a politics and a society that doesn't value families generally the way that it used to. So, I uh, would urge you to you know read this article, maybe share it with a couple friends. It's just an interesting conversation starter, whether you live in a city yourself or not. So that would be my my recommendation for the week. D- Justin, always good to be with you. I know where uh, Ann Campaign is in full effect. We'll be really focused through uh, through the summer, through August, building. Uh, we had a, a, a great July. And so would urge folks to check in with Ann Campaign at annecampaign.org. Would urge folks to leave a review for the Church Politics Podcast on iTunes. Helps us get the word out. If you leave a written review, we may read it on air. We want to show love, uh, particularly to uh, to you, our listeners. Uh, Justin, any closing thoughts? That's it, man. Y'all have a good week. Uh, keep your eyes peeled and do your best to be as biblical as possible in the in the discourse. Y'all take care. Have a blessed week. Thanks, y'all. Came out of Nazareth. This is the groove. Tell me, can yeah. you handle it? I'm schooled in the ways of runaway slaves. I'm brave. I'm unchained. I'm Frederick Douglass with a